Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, brought to you by Global Scholars. I'm Stan Wallace, your host, and today's topic is Mastering the Virtual Learning Environment. My guest today is Pete Mara. Pete has over 20 years of experience using technology to enhance learning in both the corporate and educational contexts. As a Christian, he has also thought quite a bit about the relationship of technology to faith and human flourishing which has far-reaching implications in this new era of distance education. So, Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, how did you get interested in virtual learning in the first place? I got interested in the first place, really, when I I started to do some work in the education space in the K-12 world. Uh, This was back in mid-early 2000s. And a lot lot was happening in the kind of MOOC and online learning at the collegiate level. And started really thinking about what that looked like in K through 12. That led me then to kind of explore this more deeply and, and really ended up actually from a technology standpoint, building learning management systems, exploring digital pedagogy and what it means to learn digitally and virtually. Took me down a rabbit hole all the way to start my own tech company around it. Uh, and then I've just, I've just kind of stayed in this space. Really, really uh, fascinated by again how people learn and how they learn differently in a in a digital world. Fast forward, and now it uh, you know in a COVID world in the post COVID world, everybody's learning on on mobile and, and mobile boxes. But back in the day, mobile instructional design was still new. <laughs> sure, you mentioned the ways people learn differently in different environments, and even the ways people are wired lead to different styles of learning. Could you say a little bit about what you've learned in terms of students' learning st- styles and how that relates to online learning? Yeah, sure. There, you know, there, there's a, and, and there's a whole host of research. So, you know, if, if you have some academics listening and PhD people that want to, you know, go deeper down the rabbit hole, but at the end of the day, if you think about it, in, inside learning, there's there's kind of really four major learning sections. There's people that learn from a visual standpoint. You've heard of them, visual learners. They like to see it. Uh, there's, you know, audible learners, people that like to hear it and understand it. There's kinetic learners, people that kind of move around and have to touch and feel, you know, tactile. And then there's people that are more driven towards the written learning styles, um, and these actually get more complex and all these things. But if you think about a, a classroom setting and in, in the way that teachers try to teach, they try to hit on multiple ways that students learn. Uh, in, in a lot of things that we have, activity sheets, drawings, paper, even the idea of pencils, chalkboards, whiteboards, those things are all really geared around those types of learning styles and learning elements. And yet when you shift into a, a digital or virtual space, that whole thing changes. Right. Um, so the way to, to, to kind of do that or rethink that is, is one, it's a challenge for teachers. It's a challenge for the learners themselves, because if you're somebody that is, say, not a visual learner, maybe you're kinesthetic, that'd be a really good example. Well, what does a kinesthetic learner do when they have to stare at a screen all day? <laughs> right. And so th- those present um, challenges and, and really, I think, opportunities for, you know, for students, for families, you know, teachers, for the learner and those people to think about how they learn differently, given their preferred learning style. So the challenges are obvious. What are some of the opportunities? 
Well, I, I think the opportunities, one, you know, visual learners and audible learners are loving life. Um, you know, my, I happen to be dyslexic. So I'm actually up in that uh, kinesthetic and, and visual learning space. Uh, the written word, both reading and writing, you know, that was, that was a disaster for me until they, they taught me how to, how to actually do it. Um, but I'm, I'm watching children that actually have some of those learning challenges and they're flourishing in a visual environment. Uh, the ability to hear their lessons, the ability to read differently, uh, those things are going great. Uh, technology's also created a great opportunity for, believe it or not, the kinesthetic learners because mobile phones, iPads, and those things a lot are, are tactile based. So now programs exist that allow students to touch things, to manipulate, to push boxes around, uh, do mm-hmm. things on screen that otherwise they they couldn't do. And even in the you know college and space and, and uh, upper upper high school and college space, just think about how kids communicate now. It's text messaging, right? It's video, it's voice, it's snaps, it's it's those types of things that have created an incredible opportunity for us to get more information in front of students and give them even new, I think, in more exciting and engaging ways to learn. That's interesting. Is it possible to profile each of those four learning styles and how they can engage best digitally, given their differences? Speaking in general terms, uh, the answer is yes, because a lot of even the new learning curriculums and, and what they'd call pedagogy, the way that, that stuff's aligned, uh, a lot of those models are starting to shift because they're they're assuming voice and video are a must, right? Like uh-huh. very few people are developing curriculum anymore that's the you know, book workbook. Like that that's no longer happening. So just by the very nature that you know McGraw Hill and large publishing companies around the around the US are saying, hey, we need to lead with mobile, or we need to lead with video, or we need to make sure we have stories and narratives that go along with this, they're all of a sudden opening themselves up to visual learners and audible learners in a way that before it never has traditionally been done. It's always been the teacher that had to supply kind of those types of things, where now they're allowing the tech to do it. Okay. So help, help me a little more. I know this is an area of expertise, and I'm still trying to get my head around how people in these different profiles, learning profiles, can really leverage these new opportunities to their advantages. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the biggest ways is to actually figure out how you learn. And we would think for, for high school and college students would be like, oh, well, we know this. And a lot of times we have a really good intuition about it, right? We've, we've, we've kind of, by that point, our academic career and development, um, we know what we're really comfortable with, but yet the, the system of education forces us into this thing, right? It forces us to still take a test a certain way, or it forces us to do these things unless you're in a really kind of creative school environment. So the first thing I would do is I would encourage students, no matter where you're at, to really think through how you learn best. And you know, learning is really kind of two, two uh, modes to that. One, how do you receive information best, mm-hmm. but how do you process it, retain it, and then more importantly, apply it? So the mechanism in which you, you gain the information may be one way, the way that you retain it best might be another, and the way that you apply it could be yet another way. 
Um, so I, I always encourage students to think through that and parents. I, I mean, I've worked a lot in the K through 12 space, especially the lower ed. You know, I go, how, how do you get your how do you identify early on it, it, that your student is is picking this up from from either a visual or a kinesthetic way? And then how do you really help them master that type of learning? And if you can do that with a kid that's in middle school or even lower schools, but you know, by middle school, they can articulate a lot more um, and they've kind of got the building blocks needed. If you, if you can get them to articulate how best they learn it, retain it, and then can figure out how to apply it, man, you can just, you can unlock the world for them because now you can go to these different types of technology platforms or technology tools. I just see technology as a tool, by the way. It's not a, it's not a cure or the end all be all. It's a, it's a tool that now allows students to unlock those different ways that they learn. Um, a good example of this might be in, for a, a younger student, again, middle school, high school, if you think about something like a science report, right? And you and I probably both did these back in the day and you'd make the clay volcano, right? And you'd throw some sure. stuff in and it'd explode. Well, you know, if I have a kid that is is a visual learner, we have, we have the ability now with an iPhone and some you know free software online, these kids can record an entire video about the volcano in the experience and never have to write a single thing, right? Their entire presentation can be what we used to call an oral presentation or an oral book report, only they can add graphics, they can add design, they can add all these types of things. So now the immersive learning experience is is huge. But I think we as parents and sometimes even as educators, we have to create the the space to allow that to happen for the students and not keep forcing them into, you know, write out your science report because it's easier to grade. <laughs> yes. And I've seen that happen so often with my own children. The, the the turning point was when we got to that point of saying, okay, Beth or Brooke. Ryan or Luke, my four, are very different and have very different ways of approaching the, the same material. So uh, that's, that's very helpful to understand. So Pete, what have students in online classes done in general to excel and to master the content, to, to get a good grade? What are some things that have received best practices for this new reality? Well, I think one, one, of, the, one of the things that has to happen. And, and I talk about this kind of from a parent, teacher, parent, student standpoint, is that, you know, teachers and parents, we have to get better at understanding education. And this day and age, it's about creativity, right? There, there's a huge shift in education. And again, I'm not going to get into any of the, uh, <laughs> any of the fights around, around it. I'm just saying, you know, we're coming out of what used to be the information age, right? And the education model was built around that. And, you know, guys like us were, were deemed smart or not smart based on what you knew or your specialized expertise. Well, I have a little, you know, six inch box now in something called Google. Information is, it's ubiquitous. I can get it anywhere faster, quicker, easier. So all of a sudden, the things that we used to value, and I would argue in the next five, 10 years, are going to have very little, if any, value. So how do we prepare students now to not only understand where to get information, like that's easy, but the real skill they have to have is the ability to synthesize it, make sense of it, and then create with it, like solve problems. So 
I, I always encourage parents and teachers when I work with them or I'm, I'm leading workshops or anything to, to look at education differently. We, we can get so focused on grades and SAT scores and ACT scores that get us into college, right? We know that we know the trail. Um, instead of saying, hey, what are you really, really gifted at? How can I unlock that giftedness and how can I prepare you to think completely different about your education experience? And if teachers and parents start that, then I think we free up the students to excel in those spaces. So kind of your specific question was, all right, well, in these learning environments, how did they do that? Well, how much time do you allocate to your children that are heavily visual learners or just really, really great at video, is it legitimate to take, you know, history from the history channel and that becomes their semester of history courses? Most people would say, no, absolutely not. Well, what if it is? And what if they could watch videos and then they could go build projects, right? Or what if they're a kinesthetic learner and their entire uh, education experience around, and I'm just picking on history, but was, hey, watch these series of videos but then go build me the models for this. Right. Like here's all the tools and things that you need. Um, we just don't approach education typically in, in a form to unleash creativity. Um, we, we focus on still how they get information and then repeat it back to us. And I think that'll be the experience of most students and then foreseeable future in the tertiary level. And uh, so are there, ways you can think of at that level where the, their professor is committed to either lecture or might be some interaction, but it's still uh, not quite what you're describing. Uh, what are some ways that students are now in this virtual environment able to really excel, given that that professor's probably not going to make much of a change in how he or she delivers the content? Yeah, I, I think this is this is one of the great opportunities. And, and I recognize if you're 20 years old, 18 to 25 or whatever, in most cases, um, you know, you're, you're still trying to discover who you are. And some students are really disciplined and some are not. I, like I get all that. Uh, but we live in a time and space where information, knowledge, and opportunity is unlimited. Yeah. Information and opportunity is unlimited. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable the fact that there's, there's no constraint. I can sit down right now, um, regardless of age, 18 years old or above, and I can go get courses from the best minds in the world, Oxford, MIT, Harvard, USC, pick your college, right? And I can get these in largely for free. So I, I, I encourage students, if there's something you find out that you're passionate about, then go after it. And, and the only thing holding you back, and this is the, you know, an old, old antage, but the only thing holding you back is yourself. Well, that's really true. So if, if, they're, if they're dealing with professors in their universities that, that are going to, again, kind of teach in what I'd call a one-dimensional way, okay, you're stuck. Like, I'm sorry, that, that's going to be the experience. You're going to have to check the boxes. But for that 15, 10 to 15% of you that really want to excel and you're hearing this podcast, go get it. Like, go find the information, go start taking online courses, go look for free materials on, you know, LinkedIn and Udemy and like all these other places, Coursera, like go get this stuff and, and find the skill sets that you need and that you want and then go deep because 
that's going to be the thing that separates you. Everybody coming out of college has math, they have English, they have like everybody has that. From an employer standpoint, and I've I've employed tons and tons of people. Um, we're looking for the the people that have gone above and beyond, and they've learned how to unlock their own learning. And I think that's the beauty of digital learning. Right. And even a benefit of this new virtual environment that it gives students even more an opportunity to do that if they're so inclined. Absolutely. But the other thing they have to do, and this is one of the struggles that that a lot of students face, and I have a, a niece who's who's in college and we were talking about this. There, there is so much in the way of distraction, right? Especially in an online environment. I have, I have children who are younger, um, you know, um, middle school age. Of course, they're online learning and, you know, you, you can click out on the internet and you can go to Google, you can go to YouTube. You can, so there's a million distractions. And I, I encourage college students, especially it's like, Hey, look, y'all are adults, right? Like my middle school, high school kids, my job is to train them to become adults, but you all are adults. Part of being an adult is taking the responsibility to shut your cell phone off and stay focused on your online course. It's being disciplined to shut off all the other buzzers and little things that pop up and notifications about Instagram and who's who's on Snap and what and shut those things off so that you can focus because you can also waste a ton of time in a digital environment because in some ways it's less structured than the teacher sitting there. You behave, you pay attention. Sure. Well, that gets to another thing I wanted to ask you about. And and that is what have some students in an online context done that really hinders their learning and clearly the distractions is, is maybe the top of the list. Are there other things though, that you see students doing as they transition to the online class model that really is counterproductive? I think one one uh, couple, but one of the biggest things that I've seen is is students, especially in that the college age, you know, high school, college age, is is they try to procrastinate more. So if you're already a procrastinator, digital or online learning allows you to excel at it, right? Because oftentimes your courses are recorded; you can go get them when you want. Right. <laughs> so it's like the hey, I'll just go watch these later. And next thing you know, you're like, you're going to try to stay up and watch, you know, six hours of history lectures or something. And that's that's never going to happen. Right. So procrastination will kill you, I think, even more in a virtual environment. Uh, The the other thing that I have seen is, is we often underestimate how draining it is to do online learning. Now, some people are experiencing this now. You've heard of Zoom fatigue and and those types of things. But, you know, our communication, the way we as humans are, are, are designed, we're, we're used to face-to-face, right? right? We're interpreting expressions and body languages and all these types of things that are twice to three times harder when we're in a, um, a video-based kind of format. Sure. And if it's lectured and it's not real, not real-time, then it becomes even more difficult. So I, I often encourage students to have to really think through what a lot of times people refer to as performance. Um, you know, you're always rested in the morning and you have more kind of energy in the afternoon. It gets less, et cetera, et cetera. But as you think about your performance of engagement, how do you apply that into your online learning? So if you have courses that are going to drain you more, where do you fit those in? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have things that give you life, right? Cause it's a little more exciting. It's more energetic. Where do you fit those in? And as a college student, especially if it's not a structured, 
you know, eight to 10 o'clock lecture course and you have freedom in these things, you have to kind of start thinking about how to manage that. Th- those are two things that I would, I would say are, are big for students making that jump. Okay. Do you have any words of wisdom for procrastinators? <laughs> um, I would say this. Um, I have a son who is, is materializing as one. Um, God bless him. But the, uh, I, I think a lot of times the, some of the procrastination is an underestimation of what's actually going to be required. And if we can estimate better in the digital space, understanding that it is going to take more mental energy, it is going to take a little more time. Um, I think that might help us reduce the, or at least be more aware of the implications of procrastination. That's good. That's helpful. So have you observed students assuming things as they move into the digital space that really is a wrong assumption? Maybe it's just uh, sort of a, a thing that would seem to be the case, but People ought to be aware that it's not, and uh, and and you can head head off some bad decisions as a result of identifying those wrong assumptions. Two uh, X is what I call it. So there there's a there's a, a a kind of myth out there, especially with high school and college age kids, that I can watch my video at two X speed, right? One and a half or two X. You can speed up the thing, and it'll talk really fast, and then I can and I can get through my lecture, right? I can check the box. Um, and, and there's not enough neuroscience on the planet to, to say that you're good enough to retain it. So again, this gets into the information in retention and inform, you know, what to do with it. So yes, you can plow through it. Yes, you can listen to it faster. You can even feel good about yourself because you can get more done if you're one of those high achievers. But I really encourage students to not do that. Um, take your, take your coursework, go through it at speed, um, there are dry, boring professors. Like that's just a fact of life. You're going to be in meetings later down the road, and there's going to be dry, boring people there. You just have to learn how to deal with that. Uh, they might be saying that about me on the podcast. That's fine too. But the um, if, if if they if they don't try to do double speed, the two X will kill you. That that's something I've seen that's bad from a transition standpoint. Uh, the other thing I would say is is ditch the coffee shop. Let's get back into distraction. We have this kind of mindset that because it's virtual, again, we're college kids, we have the flexibility, we can go just kind of open up our laptop and do this anywhere. Um, when you're trying to learn and really trying to retain, you need to be in an environment that's focused. And, and that's something that I would argue, I must sound like an old guy now, but the uh, I would argue that generationally, that's a big shift because they're so used to being distracted and fragmented that feels normal, but it's really, really bad for us from a learning standpoint. It's okay because I, we, we can process a bunch of information quickly, but it doesn't help us, one, retain it, or two, understand how to apply it. Um, it's just information in. So that that's another thing where I encourage students like, hey, you all need to find a spot. It doesn't have to be the library, uh, but you need to find a kind of a spot where you can settle down into it. You can put on some noise canceling headphones. You're not visually distracted by people walking around in the coffee shop right. and you can focus because if you can do that, uh, you, you can actually retain and, and get a lot more out of your online learning experience. Thanks. That does make a lot of sense. And uh, Starbucks won't be happy to hear that, but I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry, Starbucks isn't sponsoring the uh, podcast. <laughs> That's right. Though, right. So we're good. <laughs> That's right. We will return to our discussion in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing to be or currently a university student? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to do just this. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more and see how you can be a part of equipping Christian professors to show Christ's love to students on a campus near you and worldwide. And now back to the show. So what are professors' expectations of students in an online learning environment that might help students know going in? Yeah, I, this is a this is a great debate I have with several of my buddies that are that are profs. Um, I, one of the biggest things is that you still have to participate in class, and and that that online participation can be a bit of a double edged sword because a lot of students, you know, depending on the professor, it's like, hey, you have to make sure you apply reply to, you know, make a post and then reply to two posts. So we just go through and we kind of do that to, again, check the box, get our grade and get out. And professors are, uh, especially if they're ones that really care about your learning, they're paying attention to what you post, right? They're looking at the level of detail in your thought process and how deep it is. And are you understanding the concepts? So, you know, I think a lot of professors have expectations, of course, um, by class varies and what all you can do. But they're looking for a deeper understanding um, inside that space, especially because when you are replying, you have time to think and process. It's not like in class where they just call on you, you're on the spot, you had a second to reply. They're like, no, no, you've been sitting there. You could have stopped the video. You could have looked stuff up. You could have read. These things should have some depth. So I think think they're definitely looking for depth. Uh, They're looking for consistency. Uh, let me tell you another thing in case you, from my IT background, they know everything. Like they know when you log in, they know how long you watch, they know what video you skip, they know how much you, you interacted with it, how you didn't. They're looking for consistency across the board that you're actually taking the courses when you're supposed to, that you're making your, your applications. You didn't just jump on Friday night, try to chug through all the lectures, post your two things and get done before Saturday morning because that was the requirement. So I, I always caution students against those because professors are definitely looking at, at that level. I'd say the third thing, um, and if you really want to, I think, shine academically, it's what else did you go after? Um, you know, professors are great at providing you your syllabus with all the, the stuff you need and the books. And then there's always that stuff called the secondary resources, right? Or the ancillary resources, which unless you're a really good student and you know most of us are not, uh, we don't even look at. But in an online form, it's so easy to go click these things, right? right. I mean, and, and Stan, we're, we're in the same age bracket. Like we remember what it was like to have to walk to a physical <laughs> thing called a library, right. you know, and you had microfish and you kind of moved it around and then you had to yeah. print it, you know, like this is just a link click, right? Like click on the link and <laughs> see what else is there and expand your learning and, and your professors are going to recognize that. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. 
So those are some good examples of how to engage uh, in the coursework. How can students best engage their professors directly in this new context for many? Yeah, that, that varies by uh, professor for sure. Some, some of them are a little more tech savvy. Um, I, I have some buddies that are profs that actually use um, chat functions. So they'll chat with the students and it's right on their mobile device. Yeah. You know, very few will share their personal uh, information for, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but I, I would say kind of that in-app communication is, is a big way. Email is still good. I mean, you know, a lot of professors are still in that space where email is, is still a really good format. I would also encourage students, you know, when you're moving into the high school or out of the high school space into the college space, uh, writing complete sentences, use punctuation. Like th- yes. these are not chats. Like I don't, I don't want to just see a string of texts with the word, the letter U instead of Y-O-U. You'd be amazed at what I've seen from some of my students. I'm just, I just send it back to them. I'm like, sure, please, please write back in English. Sure. Even if I understand the text. And no caps, no capital yeah, no letters caps. anywhere. Right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's insane sometimes. So if you're a student, definitely don't do that. But I, I think, you know, email is a good form, in-app, in-application communication, whether they're using, you know, Moodle or, you know, uh, whatever, Canvas, whatever the, the process or forms are that they use. Um, and, and believe it or not, and this is something some of my buddies and I kind of joke about, a phone call to their office is actually good, too. Hmm. Um, you know, especially now in a COVID world, it's kind of weird to do office hours and all those things. Uh, and But so many students are conditioned to not talk on a phone. Right. I mean, I, I have kids that like, they texting each other when they're in the yard, right? Instead of actually talking, let alone a phone. Um, yep. So, you know, calling them really, again, that makes an impression. And if it's during their office hours, great. If it's not, leave them a voicemail. And a lot of times these these guys are, they're, they're older, right? Like right. they're conditioned to pick up the phone and call back. So that's something that can benefit the student. Good. Now, how about students working with one another in a class? How can they work best together virtually to make the most of their online context? That's a good question because this is something that is is shifting right now and in, in we're we're seeing it in the education space. Again, K through 12, it's kind of easier because a couple of people huddle around a device. Sure. College age, it's different, right? Everybody has to get on. A lot of people want to be mobile. I, I think one of the key things, especially for the college and university space in the virtual world, is figure out how to build some relationship. Uh, if you're on class and it, and it allows you to have Zoom with face-to-face, like do it. Do it several times so that people can kind of put names and faces and personalities together and, and build that rapport that you would have otherwise had in your classroom you know, the, the, the person down the hall who's having a bad day or you kind of see them and they're wearing hoodies and you know who they are, like get that feel sure. um, through an actual face-to-face tran- transaction. And then if you have to move into some space where you're using like shared messaging boards or or shared white space to kind of create and collaborate, you can do that, uh, but still have that personal connection. I think I think that's really important. If, if you have the opportunity, and this really gets into the K through 12 space, uh, there's been a lot of studies done. Actually, um, Dr. Kim out of USC or out of Stanford uh, did a study that was great. 
and it's really changed the way schools are looking at technology. But what they found is the, the best collaboration, this is about collaboration, the best collaboration happened three people around one device, no matter what the device was, Chromebook, laptop, iPad. If you got three people on a single device, the, the collaboration they had, especially in that K through 12 space, was far, far superior than if you had one-to-one and stuck three people together. Because when there's one-to-one and three people are together, everybody has their own thing. They could kind of zone out. But as soon as I stick three people on one device, everybody's engaged. They're looking over each other's shoulder. They're seeing what's getting put down. They're, they're running through the program. So that's just something that's interesting. Again, if you, if you deal with lower ed students or you're a teacher or a homeschool parent and you're kind of doing some of this, that three-to-one is a big thing. In my house, I actually use that because my my children, God bless them, they still haven't realized that they're better off not ratting on each other, right? So if that one sibling's not paying attention, the other sibling will be like, hey, they weren't paying attention. So the three to one works out great. <laughs> well, and I can really see that even uh, more so after these COVID restrictions lift with students deciding to meet together and work together three on one device on projects. Yeah, it does. And, and I think it, we're going to see that trend, you know, kind of continue. Sure. Uh, because it, it just unlocks, it unlocks a whole lot of different opportunities for students. So Pete, how can students develop systems or processes or, or habits? You've mentioned some, but other habits that might serve them well in the online environment? Yeah, I think, I, I'm I'm still a, a fan of some like kind of old school disciplines of setting a schedule. And I know, you know, there's A-type personalities and all Myers-Briggs and all these things, but a basic schedule and some basic discipline around your day, I think is incredibly important. If you're if you're not one of those people yet and you're getting ready to go to college and experience all that freedom or you're there, uh, the digital world, again, is only going to make it worse because if you don't have a defined class time, it's hard to get up for class. Right. If you have you know, flexibility where otherwise you, know, you had to eat lunch from 12 to 1 because your next class was at 1 o'clock and you had to be there, but now that's not the case. It's very, very important to figure out how to set a schedule, um, whether that's a, a notebook or like I don't care what form you use, but set a schedule to help yourself be successful. The other thing that I, I think is important is also lining out what historically was your syllabus um, in some type of tool that allows you to track when everything's due. Because one of the challenges that I've, I've heard from students, is that, well, I have so much online, and this was even before COVID, so they may have only been taking a few classes, right? But I have like so much online, I miss assignments, I'm not sure, I was supposed to watch this video, I can't find it, the technology didn't work, dog ate my homework. <laughs> um, if you go through and you begin to line that stuff out for you know even a month at a time, you just say, this is what my month looks like. These are all the videos I have to watch. These are the podcasts I have to listen to. These are the PDFs I have to download. The, if you kind of build that almost mini tech plan of what technology is going to be required of you, I think it really helps lower the anxiety in, in a lot of students around knowing where they where they have to log in, what they have to get, what expectations are around. Because look, I mean, internet, while it's 95% of the time good and stable, technology always goes wrong. 
right? You run out of battery, something, internet's not working, something crashed, but just having that framework helps lower the anxiety in students and, and gives them an opportunity to, uh, to feel better about of what they're doing. The third thing I would say is create some type of system of accountability. And, you know, in, in school, a lot of times you always, you know, you find that friend in class, your study partner or, you know, whatever the case might be, and, and you kind of hold each other accountable or you're talking to each other because you're walking to the to the cafeteria and you're like, hey, what do you think about so-and-so's class? Uh, I'm not looking forward to writing that paper or, hey, um, how'd you do with that calculus? Well, I, you know, I didn't understand problem six. Those time, types of things are not happening uh, in a virtual environment. So as a student, you have to be really intentional about that conversation. You either have to be really intentional about putting that type of stuff together for yourself, or you have to be really intentional about having virtual coffee with your friends. And you just kind of chit chat around that and around those topics, especially in a COVID world. I think post COVID, you know, kids are getting out and, and, and they're, um, that's less of a concern, but uh, you know, during COVID or during these lockdown periods, you have to be more intentional about that. Let's talk about the mental side of this. Let's talk about the increase in depression that we're seeing as a result of the isolation from digital learning. How can students best deal with that? Yeah, that that that's a huge issue. Um, one that is um, I've actually spent a lot of time on recently. There, there's a great book coming out. I'm going to make a shameless plug for it. Um, Please do by Dr. Matthew Sleeth. Uh, it's coming out in April. It's called Hope Always. Uh, Tyndale is going to be the publisher for it. Write this down, save the date. But he he has looked at the uh, pandemic of, of mental health and suicide. He's an MD um, and, and he's basically looked at kind of almost a theology of mental health and, and the impact that it's had around families and those types of things. I'd also highly recommend his book, 24-6, which is about Sabbath keeping and rest. Good. And I think that's um, very, very important for students in this kind of always on environment. Mm-hmm. You know, part, part of the reason why, why we have this is we're, we're hyper isolated, uh, not just in digital learning, but we're hyper, hyper isolated because of the little square box we carry around. Right. Uh, it opens up a whole host of other problems that we didn't have to worry about before as far as I have access to the world. Right. Right. Like when I went when I went to school, I had to worry about the people in my my school. And occasionally you'd see kids from other schools like at football games or, you know, there's a little bit of that. But by and large, that wasn't the issue. Well, now you have to deal with every kid that has a, you know, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever account all over the world. Um, So just I don't think we were designed or wired by God to deal with that much. Right. I I think there was a reason there was a Jerusalem, Judea and beyond kind of concept. And that didn't fit for everybody. Um, Some of us were supposed to deal with smaller bits of information. I I do think specifically in the online environment, it's really important. One, I'd always tell kids this. If you if you feel disconnected, unplugged, and you, you're feeling depressed, go get help. Good. I can't say enough. Like, go get help. That, that's, that's my message. Um, there, there are resources on campuses. There are resources online. Like, go get help. Don't try to fight it by yourself. Don't try to push through it. You're not weak. Go get help. Now, the things that I think you can do to help you uh, is unplug. 
And that sounds counterintuitive because I'm a, I'm a tech fan. Like I'm a junkie. Uh, but in my family, the day just happens to be Sunday. I mean, I don't care what day you do it, but we have a day where we just completely unplug from all electronics. Like they don't get turned on in our home. And it's the best day of the week. Like my, my kids look forward to it because they know that it's just profoundly different. And I encourage college students, especially to, to do that. And they're like, well, I can't, I've got tests, I've got exams. I've got, like, look, I carried 20 hours in a military school and I managed to unplug. So I'm confident that, that you can do it, right? It's just a matter of ordering your time, being disciplined and setting aside time to unplug. Even if that's only five hours on a single day of the week or whatever it might be, but create those spaces to unplug because it's huge for your mental health. Makes a good word. How about Christian students? Let's talk a little bit about them in particular. Is there anything about this new digital environment for most of them that's either an added challenge or a new opportunity unique to them? Well, I, I think for Christian students, the, the, the challenge is one, again, of distraction and in fragmentation. Mm. I'm amazed at how many Christian students especially are, are just fragmented because they try to do too much or, or they're, you know, there's just so much out there. There's so unlimited choice in things to do, both missionally and, you know, scripture. I mean, pick all the good things you can do, but they're unlimited. And, and that, I think, tends to be actually problematic um, because there is so much. The, the other thing I would say that, that I've seen Christian students um, kind of struggle with is, is really not just figuring out how to narrow that thing, but then figuring out how to articulate or use technology for good. Like technology doesn't have to be bad. And, and Christian I'm pausing because I'm about to make a journalization, which I don't like, but um, a lot of Christians will use technology for what I will call evangelism or proclamation of the gospel, which can be a good thing. Okay. Um, but then it stops. Mm. Like we, we are, are, are poor at oftentimes developing hospitality around technology or community around technology. We're really good at sending out, you know, the little Instagram stories or the little posts about, you know, love Jesus. And I felt, you know, like, like, okay, great. Like they used to do that with these paper things called tracks. Right. Now you just made them visual. And again, I'm not knocking either one. Like I, I, sure. I don't care. I'm not getting in that fight. Uh, there's a place for all this, but I'm just saying from a, a, a student who wants to be a believer and understands that technology is shaping our worldview for them to understand how to use this powerful tool to shape worldview inside community and inside practices that give people a place to be safe and feel secure and confident. There, again, there's almost unlimited possibilities that direction as well. So I think, I think Christian students need to be, I challenge them to be even more savvy and more smart about how they spend their time and how they use the technology. Yeah, that's something I don't think a lot of us have thought a lot about. Are there any good books you know of that talk more about that? Not off the top of my head, um, although I have been in conversations with a couple of people about writing one. So we, we, uh, we're actually looking at one around the theology of technology um, and Christian worldview. So, um, I mean, you know, I, th I think of Neil Postman's work, of course, and Technopoly yeah. and other 
things that are dated but still true. But uh, there's a whole new set of issues these days. Yeah, I, I think the yeah, and, and um, yeah, there, there's a lot of those I'd say historically that have been good and still have the right mix. But I think the part that no one is accounting for now, or that it's hard to account for, is the implication of social. Yes. Right. I mean, that, that's the piece that's changed. Like all these platforms allow me to publish anything I want to the free world, like instantaneously. Right. And that's 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 not good. <laughs> right. For that's not good for adults, let alone twenty-year-old kids and and younger. Yes. Um, so. Yes. Well, is there anything else you'd want listeners to know that we haven't talked about today? I think I would just want to encourage listeners, again, whether you're a parent or whether you're a student, to expand your use of technology for the purposes of creativity. Don't just see it as information. See it as tools that exist to help you be creative. Because we we live in a world that is just rapidly changing. Markets are changing. Uh, the way people connect are changing. I mean, you look at... A couple of the biggest companies in the world right now, the biggest real estate holding company in the world. Do you know who it is? I do not. Airbnb. Of course. Here's the irony. They don't own a single piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Largest transportation company in the world. Uber. How many cars do they own? None. Zero. Right. And I could go on and on and on. My, my point is, is that that's the world. And I've even touched on like AI, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, machine learning. Yeah, I haven't even touched on all those implications that are less than five years away. But how do you prepare a student? And if you're in college right now, how do you prepare yourself for an employment world where that's the new normal? Like forget COVID. That's the world that we're entering into. So Again, we have an incredible opportunity. Don't don't be frightened by it. Be encouraged. Embrace it and, and really figure out how to use digital learning and all of these resources at your disposal as a competitive advantage uh, because it's it's there for you. There's there's nothing limiting you. As much as I normally hate that statement because I'm like, no, I am limited. Um, you're really not. Financial and economic limitations are are, are dropped or greatly reduced. Um, geographical limitations are are no longer an issue. Uh, there's just so much opportunity. So I would encourage parents and students to go take advantage of it. Well, Pete, as we draw to a close, where can listeners go to learn more? The best place to find me is actually LinkedIn. Um, if they if they want to try to connect with me in any way, um, I'm active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm active on on Facebook. And I'm on Twitter, but I never post anything because I use it to listen. So that's a that's another podcast for another day, how to use social tools. But yeah. um, LinkedIn is probably the best place to, to go find me. Great. How, how about websites? Do you know of any websites that would help students do well in the online environment and, and maybe in, including addressing issues of learning styles? I would just recommend you go Google learning styles because there's there's literally, uh, I mean, hundreds of those free resources out there that they can go to, tests that they can take. Harvard's education publications are great, the Harvard Ed. So that, that's a place I recommend. And I really like what's coming out of MIT. So MIT education and, and, and MIT's MOOCs 
you know, they were the, some of the first ones to develop that. So you can go look at MIT stuff because what, what they're really trying to do is not just the technical piece, but they're really trying to also help marry kind of the technology to the human side of, of what people are doing. So I definitely recommend Googling learning styles and just, just go get educated if you haven't, you know, go, go read a few articles. There's a couple TED talks on that. Um, that you can also find if you Google those in learning styles, digital pedagogy is another one that, that's out there that, that's also beneficial. Great. That's very helpful. Pete, thanks for your time and your wisdom and insights. And uh, I think I, I know I've learned a lot. I think our listeners have as well and will benefit from this conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me, Stan. I really appreciate it. And I hope this has uh, helped some people and encouraged folks along their journey. It certainly will. Thanks again. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education helps you or someone you love flourish in both heart and mind during the university years. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stan W. Wallace. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to learn how you can be a part of creating lasting change in higher education worldwide. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of the show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps a lot. And finally, I encourage you to pass this show on to your friends or others you think would enjoy hearing our conversation. So until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.